Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Expectation of All Creation, From Bondage to Decay to Glorious Freedom. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 17, 2011. About a year before he died, Albert Einstein described himself in a letter as a deeply religious unbeliever. Einstein was fascinated with the beauty, rationality, and complexity of nature. He had what you might call a cosmic awe for the mystery of the world he strove so mightily to understand. The eternal mystery of the world, he once wrote, is its comprehensibility. Einstein repudiated charges that he was an atheist and criticized the intolerance of those whom he called, quote, the fanatical atheists, end quote. But Einstein never attended worship services. He didn't pray. He rejected doctrines like the miracles and the afterlife. When asked about claims that he believed in a personal God, he categorically re rejected the idea as a lie that is systematically repeated, even though he clearly and consistently denied it. Einstein didn't believe in a God who was in any sense personal, or who, as he put it, quote, concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings, end quote. The God of Einstein is a far cry from the God of the psalmist in the Psalm 139 for this week. The God of Psalm 139 cares deeply and tenderly for every human being. He does, in fact, care about every person's fate. The psalmist says that you can never flee so far that you're beyond the presence of God's Spirit. Whether I go up to the heavens or make my bed in the depths, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The darkest day cannot extinguish the light of his love. In some mystery of intimacy, the infinite God knew me before I was born. He fashioned me in my mother's womb, and he lovingly ordains all my days. I might sense this a lot or a little, but it's always, nevertheless, true. But God is not my heavenly valet. If I'm not careful, my narcissistic tendencies fashion a God in my own image who cares only for me, or especially for my selfish whims. The Old Testament story this week in Genesis 28 about Jacob's dream provides a helpful corrective. God cares for me, true enough, but he also cares for each person and every nation. When God first called Abraham to form a nation for himself, he said that he would bless not only the Hebrews, but Genesis 12:3, all peoples on earth. When he repeated his divine call to Abraham's son Isaac, he reiterated his indiscriminate love for all the world. In you, Isaac, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Genesis 26, 5. And when Isaac's son, Jacob, used a rock for a pillow 
and dreamed a dream at Bethel. God again repeated verbatim the same words. In you, Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Genesis 28:14. The only favoritism that God shows is his unconditional love for each person and every nation. In the book of Ephesians, Paul emphasizes this point by making a clever phonetic play on words. God, says Paul, is the patera of every patria. Translated, he's the father, patera, from whom every family, patria, derives its name. Which is to say, God is not my privatistic God. He's not the God of Jews alone, not America's God, or even the God only of Christians. Rather, in Paul's words, he's the father of all fatherhood, the father of every family, or the father of the whole human family. He's the God of Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists. Paul even expands God's fatherly favor to quote every family in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. Paul reinforces this point in this week's epistle from Romans. The Eastern Orthodox tradition reminds us that Jesus is the Pantocrator, the Lord not just of people, but of all things, seen and unseen. Paul combines candor and hope to describe the ambiguous history of all creation. On the one hand, he acknowledges cosmic suffering. Our sufferings provoke a sense of frustration, futility, weakness, and subjugation. Paul says we remain in bondage to decay. Like a woman in childbirth, the entire creation groans inwardly and outwardly. The pain can feel unbearable. Paul is thus brutally realistic about our fallen human condition. But he also exudes confident hope. He says believers should live in eager expectation because our future glory will far eclipse our present suffering. The ultimate destiny of all creation is liberation and freedom, adoption and redemption. The scale and scope of this future hope includes not only each person in every nation, but what Paul calls, quote, the whole creation, end quote. There's an expansive logic to the Christian good news that is evident in Paul's epistles. In Colossians 1.16, we read that God create, created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. Then in Philippians, we read that he seeks the worship of all things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. In Colossians 1.20, he will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Ephesians 1.10, he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven and on earth. In Ephesians 3.15, God delights in bestowing his fatherly favor on the whole human family in heaven and on earth. On earth, under the earth, 
and in heaven. God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 The redemption of the entire cosmos is a scandalous idea that faces significant objections. It shocks our sense of justice. Doesn't Hitler deserve punishment? It seems to undermine ethics. Don't our moral choices have eternal consequences? Universalism has had its adherents, but it's always been a minority position in the church. And most important of all, there are many texts like the gospel for this week that speak of hell and judgment. For these reasons, universalism is best seen as a pious hope rather than a dogmatic certainty. You have to be crazy to teach it, but impious not to believe it. On the one hand, the most presumptuous thing we can do is claim to know the mysteries of God. Judgment is his alone. On the other hand, the psalmist for this week rejects the dualist notion that anything exists outside the presence of the omnipresent God of infinite grace and perfect love. Which is to say that we rightly long for the day when death will be destroyed and God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15:28. And now from the sublime to the ridiculous. For books this week, I review Tina Fey, Bossy Pants. New York, Little Brown and Company, 2011, 277 pages. Before reading this book, I knew little about Tina Fey, except for her impersonation of Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live in the fall of 2008 that spread like wildfire on the internet. And don't forget, the real Sarah Palin joined Fey on the show a few weeks later. After reading this book, I still knew very little about Fey, and that was a disappointment. But this book is a so-called autobiographical comedy and not a memoir. Only rarely does Faye exchange her comedic persona for personal candor, mainly when she reflects on discrimination against women in the workplace. So with that caveat, this is otherwise a great read for the beach or your next airplane ride. Faye describes her middle-class upbringing as the younger of two kids in a Greek family in West Philadelphia. Her father is what she calls a Goldwater Republican. After graduating from the University of Virginia with a degree in drama, in 1992 she moved to Chicago and landed a job at the Second City Touring Company. She worked at a YMCA front desk by day and took improv classes at night. In 1997 she scored a writing job at Saturday Night Live where she worked for nine years after which she produced the Emmy Award-winning television comedy series, 30 Rock. The rest, as they say, is history. Faye's chapters include such things as 12 tenets on looking amazing forever and things I learned from Lorne Michaels. She takes us backstage for a magazine photo shoot, which provides a rift on the pros and cons of photoshopping. 
The live Palin skit came the night after she had spent a 12-hour day doing a shoot with Oprah for 30 Rock. Maybe Tina Fey will write something more reflective in the future. In the meantime, enjoy her for who she is, a hugely talented and funny cultural icon. Tina Fey, Bossy Pants. For film this week, a review of a movie from China. It's called Last Train Home, from the year 2009. Director Lixin Fan pays tribute to Chinese migrant workers in this powerful documentary film about what he calls the world's largest human migration. Once each year at the Chinese New Year, 130 million peasant workers leave their urban factories and return home to their rural villages and the families they've abandoned in order to make money. They are, in fact, the human cogs in the machine of global capitalism who sell our $100 blue jeans. After watching this film, you'll never read the words made in China the same way. Fan focuses on one couple, Zhang and Su Qin, who've worked for 15 years in a textile factory. They've sacrificed their present lives in hopes of a better future for their children, teenagers Qin and Yang, who are being raised 1,300 miles away back home by their grandmother. Zhang and Su Qin urge their kids to study hard in order to avoid their own fate. So they're devastated when King drops out of high school and starts working at a factory just like theirs. The movie is in Mandarin with English subtitles. Last Train Home from China. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Clarabelle Allegria, who was born in 1924. The title of the poem is called From the Bridge. Clarabelle Allegria was born to Nicaraguan and Salvadoran parents in Nicaragua. She moved to the United States in 1943, graduating from George Washington University. In 1985, she moved back to Nicaragua. Her work was featured in a Bill Moyers PBS series called The Language of Life. Her 40 books of poems, fiction, nonfiction, and children's stories have been translated into more than 10 languages. Clarabelle Allegria, From the Bridge. I never found the order I searched for, but always a sinister and well-planned disorder that increases in the hands of those who hold power, while the others who clamor for a more kindly world, a world with less hunger and more hopefulness, die of torture in the prisons. Don't come any closer. There's a stench of carrion surrounding me. From the Bridge. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 17th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.